And we're back. Uh, Jeff Schlemmer, Bob Metz with us in uh, the studio. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Uh, very well indeed, and good to have you both here. I want to, Jeff, start with uh, just follow up on a story we did a minute ago and take advantage of your expertise. In Great Britain, the Prime Minister's office has um, introduced a review of crime and security policy, and one of the recommendations is this, that they publish efficiency data on the courts with the idea that poor performing courts will face measures to force improvements. Uh, I'm wondering if you could share with us, I don't know if you know anything about this particular story, but how would one assess whether a court is efficient or not? What criteria would, from a lawyer's point of view, are there efficient and inefficient courts? Well, I guess uh, I think that, that everything should always be set, assessed for efficiency, and it's a question then of defining efficiency in intelligent terms. The, the risk is that uh, if they're defined in unintelligent terms, then they end up, uh, such a study ends up being useless or worse. Uh, with courts, I suppose, they would be looking at things like how long does your average trial take, how long does it take to get to a trial, how many appearances are there before the hearing takes place, uh, you know, how much paperwork is involved, is that being flowing in an efficient way, and so on. The courts are in a, a bit of a funny position because the it is difficult to assess the quality of justice, which is the ideal result at the end of the day. So uh, it, you can't say, well, this trial took three days and the other one took one day, so it was an inefficient trial. You just have no idea how long it's going to take to get the evidence out. Um, and what has happened in in Canada, the courts are sort of governed by judges, but also by the government. And from time to time, the government has come in and purported to do this, that, or the other thing. And the judges have said, no, no, you can't do that, and vice versa. And one of the results of that is that courts in Ontario, at least, have been quite slow to adopt technologies. For example, uh, it's only recently, I think, that when you're paying for services at a court that you can use credit cards. Uh, and for the longest time, you had to use checks. And uh, as the rest of the world moved into uh, faxing things, you couldn't fax things to the court. You couldn't serve things by fax. So so a lot of time and money was being spent by going over and uh, personally dropping things off. Uh, I was at a uh, conference last week, and we had a session about um, kind of an update on paperwork for courts. And they made the point strongly that the courts are extremely picky about paperwork, and that you have to they they have it nailed down right down to the type of font that you have to use, the size of font, the spacing, the colors of, of, of the folders. Yeah, everything. Everything has to be exactly the way they want it. The wording has to be exactly what they want. And it, that makes it very difficult for your average person to to access the courts. Why do they want? Is is that their idea of efficiency? That if we if it's all predictable and it's the right color and the right place, the right words, that it saves us time? Well, I think there are two traditional rationales. The first is that they say that your paperwork should look the same regardless of how much money you have. And uh, that's, the, that's the ostensible reason we all wear robes, is the theory is that when the judge looks out in the room, he can't tell who's the lawyer for the poor person and who's the lawyer for the rich person. So if their paperwork is all consistent, then somehow that gives a... I thought you, I thought you all wore robes because it was a holdover from the days when it was ecclesiastical courts. Well, that's where the ro actual robe came from, but the tradition of us all having to wear the same thing. Mm. I, I'm still waiting for them to branch out into some other colors, because <laughs> black is so yesterday, but... <laughs> black is so slimming, though, as my mother used or, to say. Or, or to allow... Uh, uh, corporate mm -hmm. sponsorships on them. I want to. There's nothing like a little black dress, you know. Well, it's you, you got to have a little black dress. Yeah, that's true. But uh, what ends up happening again is that they're so so red tape bound that effectively it makes it very difficult for someone who may have the greatest case in the world but can't afford thousands of dollars to get through all this paperwork uh, to get into court. They'll never get to court. And it always reminds me of the story that uh, that my uh, mentor Scott Ritchie used to tell, which was about the Chancery courts in England hundreds of years ago and how they became so 
bureaucratic and uh, and red tape bound that the equity courts rose up, uh, the, the church courts, and people began to resort to them because you didn't have to have everything nailed down to the last dot before you could come and ask a judge for justice. And I would argue that if somebody wants to come to court and they've got paperwork that may not be as beautiful as the paperwork that Conrad Black's lawyers can put together, they should still be able to do that. And the judges aren't stupid. They can figure out well, there's a, ju- there's a kernel of injustice in here somewhere, and we're going to rule on it. And it really doesn't matter how pretty the paperwork is. Uh, the other rationale that's given for the for the um, standardization and, and colors and all that stuff is it's more convenient for judges so that they know, for instance, if they're looking for uh, a factum, it's going to be a particular color. Mm-hmm. If they're looking for a record, it's going to be a particular color. Uh, that know, was the reason I was taken to understand for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that doesn't seem unreasonable. No. I mean, if we can save them time to do that. If they keep it simple. And again, among other things, there's, a, there's something we still have to this day and age called a back page. Uh, and this goes back to the days when uh, writs were served and they were folded over. And the back page would have on it the, the style of cause, the, the name of the case, who the parties were, who the lawyer was, and so on. They fold it over and serve it. Back pages are a huge pain in the butt in the modern technological world because whenever you prepare a document, when you're photocopying them and tabbing them and binding them, you have to flip them around. And they're also long ways instead of uh, you know mm-hmm. the same format as everything else. So they're, they're an, an anachronism. They're, they're hugely inconvenient uh, for our modern machinery, and we still have them. Why do we have them? Well, because we've always had them. Uh, and <laughs> Well, that's a good enough reason. That, uh, that'll do for me. And, and some people yeah. would say and judges like writing on them. <laughs> and it's like, well, again, but but this, this, the courts have those problems. And uh, I know that when um, a number of years ago now, they established a, a separate tribunal for um, landlord and tenant matters. And they really uh, uh, took advantage of uh, of making a fresh start and saying, we're not going to have back pages. You can serve stuff by fax on us. You can pay by credit card. So it's it's hugely more convenient than the courts are. Okay, let's go back. I want to go back to the story for one more item from, from uh, Great Britain, uh, the same story. Uh, one of the other things they're suggesting is that they're going to ex- extend the police's uh, ability and authority to seize assets from criminals, like uh, the, the so-called proceeds of crime that they have in the United States, and to a lesser extent, I believe, in Canada, too. I think so, yeah. No, not to a lesser extent. Forfeiture endangers American rights. Now Bob's reading from his briefcase here. (laughs) I got that here at the University of Western Ontario from a symposium on that very subject. Mm. Ontario has since introduced the same legislation and did so uh, a couple of of, uh, governments ago. And um, basically they can seize assets and keep them even though charges are not laid or no one was uh, found guilty of anything. What criteria do they have to... Because the theory is, I understand the theory is this. If you've got some guy with no visible means of support who's a known felon and consorting with felons and so on, and he suddenly turns up with a brand new Rolls Royce car, there's a pretty fair chance that he didn't that's, come by that honestly. That's the theory, but there's a class action already underway where there's all kinds of people who have been caught by this law. Mm-hmm. And just uh, maybe some grandmother who had money under a mattress or something like that and was caught in a car with it. It's all it takes. Yeah. And um, you know, and in the states, for example, some of the things they've done is, for example. Uh, People have had cars with, uh, you know, just confiscated by the police because they caught the, the spouse on a on a corner somewhere looking for yes. for some uh, entertainment, well, if you know what well, I mean. Yeah. And I it's the wife's car, yes. and she doesn't get the car back. I remember <laughs> a bad. case uh, a number of years ago in the media that. Uh, uh, as part of the war on drugs, that of course there are some drugs that are legal in Canada that are prescription approved that are not in the United States. And there was a young woman who took her Honda Civic over to Detroit for the evening and happened to have a prescription drug, a drug that she was taking legally in Canada, but was not a uh, legally approved drug in the United States. So they seized her car because she had this 
uh, unauthorized drug. Oh, you know what and else will get your car seized in Canada if you're an American? Having a for sale sign in the window. What? Yeah. I ran into three or four Americans when I was down there on a speech tour. Uh, had the same problem, especially if they were hunters or something to attract the attention of the police. Some guy had his car taken because he had a for sale sign. American plates in Canada. Got to take that sign out. I haven't heard of a seizure for that, but a problem with this is that in the case of the woman, uh, she was told that the legal fees that would be involved in getting her car back were more than the car was worth. So effectively, she lost her car because she had a medicine that she needed to take that was perfectly legal, but she crossed the border. And I guess, like all laws, it's a question of do you interpret them with a degree of sense or do you interpret them blindly so that they lead to injustice? Uh, Well, in in the States, not to attack the Americans, because I'm not known for doing that, but in the States... Anything to do with drugs, they do tend to follow things rather blindly. Yipper. But that's, I mean, and I remember that story, too. I think you've you've shared that story with us before. Could be. You think about just how monumentally silly that is. Just, at the very worst, say to her, listen, ma'am, I'm sorry, you can't bring these in. We We understand they're legal in Canada. You can't have them in the States, so you have a choice to make. You either will pour them down the toilet and you can watch, or you can go back home. Well, you'd think. You think, and, and that's that's again a problem with all these laws. That uh, when you, it's always a question of how much discretion should you leave local people? Because for every case where you find that the discretion has not been used appropriately, like that, there's a case where discretion has been abused by somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's always a question of you know how do we how do we craft these things so that they're idiot proof? <laughs> because we know idiots are going to be involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, to me, they're crafting them to get around the law and the protections that citizens have now. So I think they're made for idiots. I, it just begs abuse. I think, in so many ways. And, you know, to speak to your earlier question about measuring efficiency in courts and things like that, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a contradiction in terms, really. Because when I hear the word efficiency, there's three ways to do it. You can either do it by comparing cost to your output. That's what they would do in business. I would think in courts, one way would be to decide, have they come up, come up with a lot of right decisions or wrong decisions? <laughs> but who's going to sit there and say that? That would be pretty political. And the other one is, uh, how much output do you get for how little time? And really, I can't apply any one of them singly to a court system. It's not the same way to measure efficiency. So my net conclusion is that this is just another bureaucratic <laughs> nightmare for people to fill out more, add costs to the courts, and give a few and, more bureaucrats and, and a job. A, a danger out that, paper. I know, I know a judge who uh, has lectured repeatedly about the fact that uh, says that trials now are ten times longer than they were when he started practicing and ten times more paper intensive. And he said, I'm not confident at the end of the day that they're any more just than they were when he started practicing. At the end of the day, the right result probably comes out about the same amount of times. But he said that what happens now is that everybody is afraid to miss something, so they throw in everything but the kitchen sink. So where it used to be that you took the two or three cases on point, now you bring in 30 cases and let the judge figure out which ones are on point. Uh, instead of bringing in the key document, you bring in hundreds of pages of documents and try and sort through it all. <laughs> and then you have testimony about it for days well, and days. you know how you and I met over the Elif case. Yeah. And I thought when I went in to defend Mr. Elif on that, I thought it'd be all over in about, what, 45 minutes? <laughs> Four years later, <laughs> and boxes yeah. upon boxes. If I just showed I you, I still got the documents. Uh, they stand higher than I do, mm-hmm. all over a little comment, one mm-hmm. word in the in the London Free Press. Mm-hmm. That's it, you know. But we beat things to death nowadays, and uh, and so why don't we stop that? You said here's a judge who recognizes that. Surely the other judges recognize it. Is there no room, no opportunity for them or somebody to sit down and say, boys and girls, it's time to fix this? 
Yeah, you'd think. And, and again, what I would love to see is the momentum. And whose interest is it to fix it, though? Not the no. justice systems, not the people inside it. They, the more work they see for themselves. It's, well, they're not, they're not going to run yeah. out of work. Well, that's they, like they, they saying, don't know that, though. That's like saying a dentist <laughs> doesn't want people to have good oral hygiene. Like, I think most of them do. And judges don't want trials to be long. And they do recognize that uh, a lot of people have, have, have injustices that they can't get fixed because they can't get there because they can't deal with a two-week trial. But somehow it's bigger than all of us. It's a... Uh, uh, you know, we have conferences and we talk about it, and uh, and uh, judges have ideas. I, I remember several years ago there was a justice reform that actually did some good things. They they uh, well, shortly after I started practicing, they took the Latin out because uh, there was a lot of Latin in their statutes. That it's was funny they did that in the Catholic Church too. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and so then, well, it's changed it's, the it's, mind it's there. Though, you know, it's an obvious thing to do. Yeah. But anyway. Uh, they always said that you know you, you used you always used a Latin phrase when you couldn't quite explain it in English, <laughs> but <laughs> or you wanted to cover your tracks. On that th- thought, we're going to pause not with Latin but with a little English, and we'll be back with more right after this. Bob Metz, Jeff Schlemmer with us today on uh, Left, Right, and Center. You mentioned Conrad earlier. Any, any anybody got any thoughts on how that's going for him? We he seems to creep into our show every week uh, for a minute or two. Anyway, on Left, Right, and Center. Well, I've got a file this thick on him now. Mm-hmm. I did a pile of clipping. I haven't read it's a lot thick, of it. It's quite thick, actually, Bob. It's about three inches. <laughs> three inches. It's right? radio, Bob. It's not <laughs> and it's And newspaper thick, too. Newspaper <laughs> print, yeah. just to make clear. But so far, nothing really major has happened. And a lot of people are saying it looks like Conrad's going to walk kind of thing. But... Uh, Nothing. Uh, I suppose it's early days yet. What it still I, is. What yeah. I heard, and we talked a little bit about this last week, and have talked to people since then, is that these the the prosecutors are massively outgunned here. That even though this Fitzgerald guy who put this case together is a very high profile, very well thought of guy, uh, the people who are actually prosecuting are just not in the same ballpark as uh, as um, what's it, Gerson and Gilson, whatever. I can never remember the guy's name mm. and Greenspan. Does that Eddie, make sense? Eddie and Eddie. Eddie and Eddie, yeah, yeah. Well, they have a jury trial, so I guess it's up to the jury to decide um, whether one side's got more weight than the other. <laughs> but how that's going to resolve, I don't know. It's just that I've been reading Peter Worthington's stuff and a couple of other columnists, and they seem to suggest there's nothing substantive to the to whatever's been levied directly at Conrad Black. There might be something there with respect to some other officers. And some of the, some of the suggestions are most of the things happened after Black was no longer associated with the companies involved. So, well, it just seems you know. that, you know, what I've been reading is they don't, it looks like they're trying to find a case here. Right, I've they're, seen they're, that. They're, they're, try, they're trying to find yeah. something. I mean, they've got all these allegations, but now that they actually have to prove the allegations, the, the it's like an obscenity trial. You know, they want to find you guilty of obscenity, and they spend the trial deciding what might be obscene so they can get you. <laughs> I've seen that literally happen here in London courts. <laughs> well, it, and it is, uh, there's so many intangibles that you just can't tell day to day what's going to happen. And one thing about juries, I, I don't know uh, <clears throat> what the situation is in the States, but I was surprised uh, in law school, and I, I haven't done a jury trial in 15 years or more, but uh, I was surprised to hear that they weren't allowed to have uh, paper and pen. They were just supposed to take in everything and kind of have their general impression about what happens at the end of the day. And in that kind of environment where impressions mean everything, things like Conrad's testimony are going to be critical, I think. Uh, it, it surprised me also in the sense that judges take copious notes. So on the one hand, if you've got a judge trial, judges are exposed to are supposed to take copious notes of all the evidence and uh, their impressions as they go and so on and then synthesize that into their decision at the end of the day. But for juries, it's really just a... Yeah, I had a feeling this way or I had a feeling that way. And in a trial that's this, that's going to be this long and this complicated, 
they'll forget most of the evidence. Well, they will, and I've never understood the rationale behind that. If you want these people to make an informed decision, I mean, almost... I won't even sit on a show like this without a notepad. Yeah. I have to jot <laughs> well, something down. I was going to say, almost <laughs> right? all of us, almost all of us in our lives at some point will jot down a note about this or a note about that, something we don't want to forget or something we found that was interesting. Uh, you just wonder on what basis would they think that's going to compromise justice. Particularly where someone's freedom is at stake. Yeah. Holy cow, that's yeah. unbelievable. Although, again, that was the case for murder trials when they had capital punishment. It was yeah. the same deal. And uh, But imagine yeah, being told that uh, you're going to take this uh, advanced trigonometry course this term, but you're not allowed to take any notes, and there'll be a test at the end, and you've got to get it right. Well, are they not, al- are they not allowed to, to ask for transcripts of the trial and so on, so they can ask to have stuff once they're deliberating? Yep. But, again, but they can't write it down themselves. There's a big difference between a oh, transcript. Oh, as long as they get a copy of it, maybe. Well, but that, the problem with that is that you're going to have thousands of pages of evidence yeah. and, uh, in addition to all of the documentary evidence. So among other things, as a lawyer, when the trial is going on, I'm writing down uh, the document numbers and then comments about them. It's not just enough this was a letter of such and such a date. It's like this is the one where he said blah. You know, I need to come back to that highlighted, scribbled mm-hmm. on. You know, you need to write down, you need to synthesize the evidence uh, in your own, to, to write your impression down at the time because you will forget it later. Perhaps be, that's the danger. Like you might hear from witness A at the beginning and you make a big note about something and then two days later witness C is up on the stand and he says something totally opposite but the impression's hard in your mind about what witness A said even though witness C might override But that's his. not going to change whether you write it down or not if the impression is over. Well, is if that, you don't write it down it might not be glaring at you. I don't know what the thinking no. is. I'm not trying. I, I wouldn't support it myself. Well, yeah, I'm, trying I, I, to, I'm trying to think for the other guys. Everything I've heard about jury trials is that we almost believe that they're magical. Mm-hmm. That essentially somehow uh, a synthesis yeah. of people with no legal background, with no experience doing this type of job, uh, when they come together, they will do an amazing job. The democratic and, and myth. Yeah. yeah. The, well, all you have to do, all you have to do to dispel that is <laughs> yeah. watch Boston Legal for a half a dozen episodes <laughs> and listen listen to Alan's closings. And somebody needs to to put a book together of those closings that he uses on that show. I don't know from a legal point of view whether they're any good, but from a philosophical and 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 uh, and uh, logical and argumentative point of view, they're absolutely brilliant. He <laughs> could take things and just turn them left, right, center, upside down, inside out, and at the end of his little speech. Where you thought you were when he started is not where you end up, and and it just I think I'm, I'm and I'm sure that happens, perhaps not with that regularity and that facility, but that must happen in courtrooms. Well, of too. course, and another legal fiction is that the, the the lawyers are invisible; that justice will out regardless of who's representing one side or the other. Uh, that, of course, isn't the case, and that's why some lawyers can charge so much money. But a big factor in influencing a jury is going to be whether they like the lawyer or not, whether they have confidence in that particular lawyer and, and ultimately trust them, because they're going to be faced with this, just, this, this forest of fact and law and everything else. And again, they're, they're not used to doing this. They're just going to take in snippets of this, that, and the other. But if they look at this guy and say, well, he seems like a straight shooter. He seems I can relate to him. He's plain-spoken, which I gather the Eddies are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and they can take complicated things and make them into a, a nice little uh, pithy aphorism and uh, that they can understand uh, and and so much of it I think is that it's identifying with them it's it's all about human skills there's a, a saying that uh, I remember hearing once which was that ideally in life you want a young doctor and an old lawyer <laughs> and the reason you want the old lawyer is because they know people they've mm-hmm. learned about people and uh, I think that that's that's most of what the eddies bring to the table and what we've read so far is that they're They've been quite effective at coming across as homie guys, and it's great because it's a pure act. They're both extremely <laughs> intelligent, sophisticated guys, but they come across with the ah shucks kind of demeanor um, because that's what juries uh, juries um, trust. If, uh, if if that were not the case, Conrad could have defended himself. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the uh, there, there's a story brewing in the city here, and this is not the kind of thing that we normally touch on. We've only got a couple of minutes, but I do want to ask you about this. Free Press has written it up this morning. This 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 division on council. There's been a division on council as long as there's been a council, but in in some incarnations it, there'd be a majority and a minority about you know, and they'd sort of play back and forth. The last few years it's sort of been hardening up. So the lefties on one side and the free enterprisers on the other side, if we can sort of generalize. Um, according to the Free Press this morning, that's really, really solidified now uh, on the issue of development in the city. Is this a good thing or a bad thing that um, that there that there appears to be? I don't know whether in fact it is or not, but there appears to be uh, more polarization on a governing body like City Council that is so close to us that our municipal government is our first line of government. Is this a good thing or a bad thing, or does it matter? Oh. I'll, I'll go ahead. If this is the first time the free press has noticed it, I don't know where they've been. No, no, no. And they, and they, yeah. no, they made the point that <laughs> right. it's, it's been like this, but what they're suggesting sure. is this council may be even more polarized than previous ones. Oh, I don't think so. I think the left has always been anti-industrial, anti-productive, uh, anti-business, anti-free enterprise, anti-freedom. That's what they're about. And and that's their thing. It's, kill capitalism at any cost, even if it kills me. Uh, whereas the right, the, what we call the right here, is a little more pro-free enterprise. They're certainly not, uh, they're pro-business, really, not free enterprise, which is a distinction I like to keep making, mm -hmm. or, or capitalism, which means free enterprise, free from government, no favoritism for so business, is, no not, corporate welfare, yeah, that kind of thing. It's not a problem, then, or any more well, than any other problem we might face in government? It's an internal problem. It's the left and the right um, that create all these pro problems, right? But one of them's correct and one is not, essentially, in, in very the broadest sense of the term. Every well, time? Every time, in every case, you know. In what? What do you mean? In, in the general? Well, uh, I thought you were you were sort of alluding to the fact that the philosophic uh, sense. Yeah, yeah, I would say every time in okay. a specific sense. Uh, okay, you Jeffrey, might be right the for the wrong the reason. The best thing that I think has happened to London in the last forty years around controlling developers is our park system along the river, and that system would not exist if uh, if it wasn't for controls on development along the river. In fact, as you know, the city bought a lot of land along the river mm -hmm. to create a continuous. Um, uh, park front along there, and I'm worried about Byron, for instance, where there are a lot of new subdivisions going in along the river out there, whether there's going to be parkland along the riverbank, and, and I'm not even saying it should necessarily be on both sides, but I love the fact that right now you can get on a bike path uh, in Byron and, and go all the way to the north end of the city on, on that bike path or to the eastern edge of the mm -hmm. city. Uh, I think that's just a jewel, and, and uh, the problem is that individual developers can't do that themselves. It requires planning and coordination, and individual developers may not be happy about the broad plan, but to me, like, if I it were possible... developers built those bike paths, I'm pretty sure. No, no. Well, well <laughs> they may have paved them, but certainly not well. at their request that there was lots of opposition to it, and there remains that, because developers would naturally like to, like to sell waterfront lots. Uh, and there's lots of people who would love to buy them, so we wouldn't have that, that uh, development. But this battle is not about waterfront lots. But one of them is the Sifton building at uh, Wonderland and uh, Yeah, and but that's not even a waterfront lot. I mean, it's 100 feet, 200 feet from the water. And it's going to be a commercial development, not residential. Yeah, well, everybody thought it was parkland until a couple weeks ago. So. <laughs> but, and, and the city hall seems to be, have been asleep at the switch. But, but, uh, but the, other, the other part of it is that I, I, I wish we could figure out a way to make more Wortley villages in the city. Yeah. And, and somehow that do just it. doesn't happen. You can't do it. Yeah. I wrote about that a couple of years ago, and I explained it very carefully. And if you read my columns, then you'd know why we can't do it. <laughs> we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> My thanks to Bob and Jeff for joining us today on Left, Right, and Center. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Thanks, Thank you. If you've enjoyed this presentation, 
Visit justrightmedia.org for more programming that's not right-wing, it's just right.